The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies, and this is episode 12. Today, I have another guest who's not a rigger. I know you're going to be upset with me, but he works with a lot of riggers. After the amount of time he's worked with riggers, he could be a rigger. I bet you he could hang a show. Uh, today's guest is Jeff Reeder of Clark Reader Engineering. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. How are you? I am doing awesome. So who are you? Oh, boy um we got a lot of time right oh yeah uh let's see okay jeff reader i'm a structural engineer i um graduated from purdue university in 1998 with my bachelor's and my master's degree so i've been doing this engineering stuff for uh, over 20 years now which is a little creepy to say um started out actually doing power plant design and heavy heavy steel design government type work and somehow fell into the entertainment world. Um, moved back to Cincinnati. I lived in New Orleans for a little bit and moved back to Cincinnati and got thrown into the entertainment mix very slowly, but uh, started enjoying it right off the bat, enjoyed the people and decided to make a go of it with Daniel Clark in 2009. We started Clark Reader Engineering and we were actually in his detached garage. So it looked like a little bit of a meth lab in the back of it. And it was just the two of us working in this little 10 by 10 space. And we, we would play Call of Duty at lunch. And it was a lot of fun, actually. Um, fast forward 10 years or so, a little over 10 years. And now we've got, you know, 16 employees or 16 engineers, about 25 full-time employees. Um, also, let's see, father of six kids. We've got quadruplets that are 13 a 17 year old and 11 year old. So pretty, uh, pretty non-boring life, I guess I, I would say. Yeah. You know, the, the quadruplets is definitely not boring. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you something. Every single person I've ever seen meet you and then eventually hear that or see pictures of your, <laughs> uh, name your sport team activity. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, we started the company with, they were, we had just had Lucas. So we five kids in diapers when we started the company so my life was an utter complete chaos for at least the first five years of it and you know as the entertainment world goes it doesn't get unchaotic well i was gonna say so let's jump into that right away clark reader engineering is considered by a lot of people in the industry the uh one of the leaders in terms of entertainment based engineering specific to the entertainment world you guys are known for a lot of work with outdoor structures, trust structures, mm -hmm. although the company does do building services and general or, or traditional building engineering stuff. Correct. What was the, the thought of you guys coming up with your own company that's uh, specialized in the entertainment market? Um, we used to work. I mean, the company we used to work for is a good place to work. And... Um, I think the two of us just thought, you know, we'd, we'd like to take what we're doing with the entertainment stuff in just a little different direction because it's such a, 
you know, traditional building design is, is a totally different animal comparatively. So the entertainment world, it's very fast paced. It's, uh, you've got to make some quick decisions. You've got to, it's really a, a truly a niche market and you've got to either dive into it whole hog or you're going to struggle a little bit, I think. And that was kind of what Daniel and I wanted to do is like, you know what, we'll dive in whole hog and we'll make the entertainment, the focus of the, of the company. And then if we do some building work on the side, that's great. Um, that's pretty much how it works right now. Cause we're doing anything from, you know, outdoor truss structures to scenic structures, to theater structures, to, you know, activations to festivals. And, you know, the one thing we've, that's kind of helped us out during this, the madness of COVID is we've been doing some building work. So it's allowed us to keep some guys working on some other things that they might not, you know, typically do. So um, we're fortunate that we're a little bit diverse in that, that regard. Absolutely. Um, The reason I asked the question or or started talking about the company was the fast paced nature. Um, You know, we, we joke, your clients, I say we, the, the people who have worked with you guys joke about the fact that we don't typically give you guys a lot of lead time. It's usually, you know, this re- most recent project I did with you guys was fairly small in terms of, of what we're doing, but it was, okay, I got this project. I had this timeline. I'm just, you know, getting involved in the design process. Here's what I need. Hey, I got, you know, six, seven days to to come up with a design of an old widget and have you guys engineer it and do all this stuff. And then we got to get it installed. And you guys respond extremely well to that situation. So going back to what you originally said is you have five kids in diapers and a new business and a new business that is going to specialize in the entertainment industry and the timeline that it presents. Yeah, that, that, that had to be just so much fun. Oh, I lost a lot of sleep. So much sleep. It, you know, it was fun, though, to be honest with you. Daniel and I laugh. We look back on when we were in his garage. You know, we were there for about a year and a half. And then we had this little small office space that we had maybe five people in or six people. And it was a lot of fun because there was a lot of late nights and just you're kind of making things up as you go to some degree. We had no real standard way of doing anything that we had to, you know, obviously as we had the people we had to, but it made it, it made a good time of it. You know, we had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, a lot of, definitely a lot of coffee. So. Yep. And uh, if you get a chance to meet, uh, I, to my knowledge, almost anyone who works at Clark reader engineering, um, there's always a lot of beer. <laughs> at, at appropriate times, I should add. That's right. At appropriate time, we do have a, a beer list on our website. The beer seasons. I don't know if you saw that, but no, I haven't. Under the about, there's actually seasons that we allow you to drink certain beers, so you should check it out. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. So let's talk about the relationship between riggers and engineers, because I'm I'm sure some of the listeners, or I should say, some of the listeners who are new to the industry are kind of curious about why, you know, what's the need of engineer in our business outside of the building? But let's talk about from the, either if we're talking arena stuff from the the point down or outdoor structures uh, slightly changes it, or even in theatrical applications, we talk a lot about riggers needing to know how to do load calculations, how to know, uh, 
I'll cut to the chase. My brain will start working. <laughs> and you and I talk about this quite a lot uh, yep. in general in our in our interaction, which is where is the line between a rigger and an engineer? When when does a rigger get to decide how many hoists to put on a truss to support the load versus calling an engine an engineer? to assist with something like that. And what I personally say to people is, as an ETCP certified rigger, I'm using pre-engineered products. So whether that's truss, strut, uh, a Schedule 40 batten that I have load data on, the hardware, the, the lifting devices, I can use those tools as a qualified rigger to do load calculations and tell you how much force I'm going to apply to a structure. What I can't tell you is will that structure stay up in the air? Mm -hmm. And where I think that particularly gets complicated is ground support structures that we ourselves are erecting. So think about your roof structure, whether it's a, you know, a 40 by 40 self climber all the way up to G2 and their outdoor roofs or mountain and their Hercules roofs. How do we navigate that relationship or, or that line of demarcation in terms of responsibilities and knowledge base? And ultimately, the goal is to make sure stuff doesn't fall over. Right. That's, uh, I guess I'd look at it this way. And this is, this is kind of my thought on it. One, I, I work with riggers all the time. And, and honestly, they, they are awesome. Um, and I can't do what they do. So... We'll be clear on that. I don't. I do not climb stuff. I've never rigged a point, <laughs> so uh, and I don't think anybody wants me to. So because I would be really bad at it. Um, and I think what the difference to me is that the riggers are kind of the doers, and the engineers are kind of the physics guys. So, you know, to be to be a true engineer, a structural engineer, you have to go to an ABET accredited college. You've got to go, you know, learn all the physics and go through all the the math classes as far as mechanics of materials and statics and uh, learning all the various codes and things like that. So that allows us to take, you know, to look at the steel beams or to look at the aluminum truss and the material and say, okay, this is what this thing can do. Okay. Um, and, and as we've talked before and what I post a lot of times, you know, for engineers, and it's actually above my desk right now, it says someone who does precision guesswork based on unreliable data provided by those of questionable knowledge. So that's really that's, what we do in a nutshell. That's accurate. <laughs> um, but see, and that, that's the thing. The, the part about those of questionable knowledge, that would actually be the rigger. And that's really not true to my, in my opinion, because the guys that, you know, that really do the rigging, like you've said, the ETCP certified guys and stuff like that, they know their stuff. Um, and what they're going to do is get us to a point, you know, of close, here's what we think we're going to be putting on this thing because you guys can do all the load calcs and things like that. But then when it starts getting to the aluminum truss and how does that that load interact with the truss itself or how does that load, the tanging interact with that plus the wind on it and where do we go from there? That's really where we come in at because we've got the, you know, the, the, the technical background through schooling and whatnot that says that, you know, we should understand that. And that's you know, part of the deal with the uh, getting your professional license and stuff like that, we have to go through a bunch of tests in order to prove that we're, you know, competent to do that, similar to a doctor or something else. Uh, right. You know, so that that's kind of my, I guess, the quick synopsis of it. Um, but, you know, in the world that we function in, we have to function together and we have to function well together in order for it to work. And there's got to be a level of trust on both sides. You know, I have to trust that 
you know, even when you send me something and say, here's my load calcs, you know, we can't go back through all that. You guys are qualified to do that. And, uh, you know, we have to take that with, with a degree of trust and knowing that you guys know your stuff. I, I think this is a, a great opportunity to explain part of the title of this podcast, which I'm surprised I haven't received more questions about, but the lies portion of the title and why is that in there? And the joke is, or the you know humor within it is, uh, all three of them are things that riggers deal with. We deal with shackles, we deal with burlap, and we deal with lies. The reality is the line array doesn't weigh 1,000 pounds. It weighs 1,200 pounds or it weighs 800 pounds. It's, it's exactly what you just said, which is we're only as good as the information or the data we're given. And if the correct. data is corrupt or inaccurate, then we are unable to get realistic answers. When I teach, I'm typically telling people that as a rigger, what we want is an answer that is going to be above what we're really going to see. Yes. Because um, we're going to put factors that, you know, the engineering gets factors of safety put into it as well. So what you don't want to have is you want everybody to be reasonably a- accurate and maybe a little on the conservative side. But if everybody is way over on the factors of safety, then suddenly, you know, that structure just got real expensive because everything's you know, two times larger than it should be, um, you know, but between the two of us, you know, working together and, and all the parties, like you said, given accurate information, then we can get it to be a pretty efficient structure, hopefully. Yep. Okay. Here's a question that I'll ask. So you talked about that you went to, uh, to college, got your degree, Purdue, right? Mm-hmm. What got you into engineering? To be honest with you, uh, I have no idea. I had a buddy that was this senior year of high school. He was a sophomore at Purdue, grew up across the street from me, knew him my whole life. He was a civil engineering student there, told me to come up and check out Purdue. Um, and I was a senior in high school, so I went up and he was in a fraternity, so I partied with him all weekend. So as an 18-year-old high school senior, I'm thinking this place is awesome. And then they told me I could play baseball as well. So I was like, hey, I'm going there. And, Sold. And what's that? Sold. Yeah, you know, and uh, the civil engineering sounded good because I'm thinking, oh, I can do stuff. You know, there was a broad range in the civil spectrum. You could go into construction. You could, uh, you know, go into soil. You could go into transportation. You could go into structures. And I was a big Lego geek as a kid. And uh, actually, all my kids are still, which is kind of fun. And so I thought, oh, structures would be cool. So I actually found out that I liked it. I sucked at it for the first two years of college that all the weed out classes, I was getting my butt kicked. And, uh, I remember I had a professor, he called me, he called me lefty. He was this guy from, uh, Rhode Island, real thick accent. And he pulled me in. He was my advisor and he, uh, my, my grades before I got into the structures portion of the engineering, you know, it was all the physics and the chemistry and all the, the core classes. They weren't like that great because I was tra- still trying to figure out baseball college you know how to fit in a little partying with it and uh he sat me down and he asked me what i wanted to do and then he's like your grades suck lefty and he just got all over me and uh I, you know professor sutton was his name and after that like i got him in a few classes for concrete and stuff and i did really well in them and uh he'd show up at some baseball games every now and again so uh he was uh very quietly he kind of pushed me to to do better in school, which, which, uh, I'm very appreciative of. 
Well, that's that's funny. One of the questions I ask my guests is who have some of your mentors been? So clearly, Professor Sutton was a mentor to you that at, I'm sure at first when he said you, your your grades suck, Lefty, you were like, screw you. But uh, <laughs> well, it was kind of a wake up call because I was like, you know, I had always done good in school. So it was tough, you know, the first year of college and stuff like, man, I'm not doing so hot. And then I realized I really wasn't putting in any time either. So kind of figure it out, you know. So here's an interesting question or topic, I should say, which is young people getting into the industry Mm -hmm. who want to go to college and maybe they're not so interested in doing lighting design or sound design or costume or any of the traditional curriculums that are available for people who want to do theater in college. There are certainly some programs that are very good in technical direction. But every once in a while, someone will pose the question to me, which is, should I minor in something? And I, I freely admit, I don't have a lot of regrets in my professional career. Uh, one of them is I wish I had done more engineering classes. Knowing where I am now, I wish I had done engineering now. Emerson and engineering are probably two words that should never be said together. But I explored a few years ago going back to school to get my engineering degree. And it is a lot of work, especially when you're older in life and you have other responsibilities like a job. But do you think that's a viable or a a good option for people who are maybe looking to to get into the industry or to specialize in certain things that maybe finding a balance of having a engineering degree as well as pursuing that practical portion of rigging and being, you know, we... You know, there have some pe- been some people in our industry who have kind of done that, and it seems to have worked well where they have an understanding of the engineering as well as the practical side. Right. Well, I get a lot of calls. I'll get calls from some of the rigging guys. You know, um, we've been doing those those ones with Eric, and a couple guys have called me and asked me to recommend some books on statics and things like that. Um, you know, to say you're going to minor in engineering might be a little tough because the classes are, I mean, it's pretty intense math wise and all the prereqs and things like that. But, you know, you could get a, go do like a statics class or mechanics and materials classes. And that'll help get you a, you know, a better understanding of how materials behave and things like that. Um, which, you know, you, the rigors kind of do for the ETCP stuff. I believe you get, you get some of that. Um, I've never taken the test or seen the questions for it really, but um, but I do think it would be tough to try to dual major that, you know, with right. a, a minor. But, you know, if, the one thing I've noticed, you know, or at least talking to a lot of people, you, you hear a lot of folks get into the entertainment world, like like you said, through theater classes or lighting design. But half the riggers I talk to, you know, I'll be like, so how'd you get into this industry? And they're like, well, they found out I could drive a truck and then they just brought me on tour and you know, or they found out that I don't mind heights. So all of a sudden I started climbing, you know, and right. And it's almost more of like a calling or a, a passion for a lot of these folks, because then they decide, man, I like this. And then you start getting the guys that are going back to school or they're going to get their ETCP stuff, or they're taking all these, you know, webinars and learning. I think it's great. Um, but I don't know, is there, is there an actual, you know, this is, this is the dumb engineer in me. Is there an actual, like, uh, curriculum for rigging in college? 
No, I think the closest thing you would find is uh, a technical direction program yeah. where you, you learn a lot uh, of stuff like that during, you know, but it sounds like a lot of people, it's more through training and, and hands on and yep. the rigging goes. Well, and, and I talk about that. My progression was I went to college for lighting design. I learned about rigging uh, through being involved with doing electrics class and then... I took some scenic design classes. You work on shows. You learn the rigging that way. But mm -hmm. I often have joked that you don't go to college to be a rigging designer. There's no such thing. Right. Um, and I think there could be. I'm not saying there could be an exact rigging designer. But what I'm saying is I think there's an opportunity as we are getting more complicated loads within the industry for people to go and specialize in rigging. And we talk about, I use pre-engineered products. The trust that I use is engineered, and a lot of the times, by yourself. And as long as I stay within the parameters of that widget, in this case a truss, I'm okay. And I'm allowed certain variables. I can have 20 feet, 30 feet. I can go up to, for the given piece of truss a certain distance right. i have variables in the choice of capacity of the lifting device and i say a hoist or the line set or the motor or whatever it is but there's certainly i think an option for people to go further into it if they think that eventually they're going to work for a automation company and i see this interesting mm -hmm convergence of automation and i've talked with some of the previous guests jim shumway and jerry ritter about that you know on the lighting side of the world we've seen this thing between video and lighting merging with led walls and you kind of have the same thing with automation and rigging which is yeah we've been hanging these heavy loads but now let's make them move around and how do we deal with that which brings up the issue of getting more engineers involved in it because we're talking about significant load shift dynamic loads which unless you've taken specific classes to deal with uh that subject matter it's really difficult to grasp and understand right so i th I, I think what i try what ultimately what i'm trying to say is when people ask me what's you know Where's the line? It's as soon as a rigger has to operate outside of those parameters as defined by the manufacturers of the, you know, the variables that are allowed to play with. That's when you bring an engineer into the situation because they can bring the expertise of the you're dealing with the macro as a rigger. The engineer can deal with the micro. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Yeah, very fair. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll bring up a project I just did with you guys. Again, very small, which was I had to lower a old winch for a scoreboard in an ice rink. And we had very low trim height. And our original plan was to use lulls, giant forklifts. But we couldn't get the capacity needed in the size onto the concrete ice rink because of weight concerns and others. So we ended up using chain hoists but there wasn't anything high enough to attach to. So I came up with a conceptual idea and yep, you can go to Google and you can find out, Hey, a X length of X material or Y material should support this amount of load, mm -hmm. but you don't know. There are a lot of variables. There's a lot of detail, which I'm not going to necessarily have the experience to identify. So I come up with a concept and I kick that to 
the engineer and I say, here's what I need. I need a beam that's this long. Here's how much load I'm going to put on it. And you tell me what it has to be and and tell me how it has to be welded together. What kind of welding bead does it take? We kick it back and forth. I'm asked, hey, what are the variables that you guys can play with? What, you know, does it have to be an I-beam? Could it be a tube? Could it be round? How are we attaching to it? And eventually we kind of flush out this design. And then what I get is a beautiful drawing that is stamped. And as you said, you go through this very uh, stringent process of getting a license, which is different from a certification mm-hmm. and allows you to say, I, I, put my name behind this drawing that it is going to perform as specified. And then we had it installed and it worked beautifully. Yeah. The way my niece put it one time, she came in, she's um, 10, 11. She was 10 at the time. She just wanted to see what we did. Um, So I was showing her different truss pieces and stuff like that. And then she finally said, so if something falls down, you're in big trouble, huh? And I was like, we're not talking ever again. Like you and I are done. So you mentioned stuff falling down. You have spent the last few weeks, like a lot of people who have been affected by the pandemic. Obviously, people listening to this podcast or people in the entertainment business, so we've all been affected by it. But you've been doing a lot of webinars with Eric Rouse and Elmer Vieth and some others uh, here and there, different guests, Mike Viemeyer, doing different. Uh, whether it's free or paid classes on different topics. And there's a term that we use in the industry, which is the variables change a little bit, but usually it's collapse porn or tragedy porn or rigging porn, which is usually the failure of a system. And we see the pictures on Facebook of, hey, this trust fell Mm -hmm. or this failed and then we all you know armchair quarterback what happened and what choices we would have made differently right the question i know it took a long time to get here is how much of your business is post failure analysis and input versus design luckily not much we we honestly um you know, I'm thinking back to the ones we've been involved in, the Silver Dome, um, Indiana State Fair, we were involved. Um, you know, we don't see, thank goodness, a whole lot of that. Um, and, and hopefully nobody else does. Um, you know, obviously we're we're all human and construction industry has failures and, and issues as well. A lot of times we'll, what we'll get is either something's moving too much or you know, maybe something got dinged a little bit or bent or, um, you know, sometimes, like you said, if we don't have all the right information, something might not go like you thought. So the one thing that I've, you know, that's interesting about the temporary stuff we do is that it's, it seems to always be changing and you're always on the phone with the guys building it going, well, why don't we do this instead of that now? Um, but I think because of Indiana, there's been a, you know, the safety level, at least, from what I've seen is, is, has increased. Um, so we don't, I don't, I wouldn't say we spend a lot of time on failure type analysis, things like that. You know, you do see a lot on Facebook, you know, and I, sometimes you don't know if that was happened three years ago, the week before, 
10 years ago and then you don't even know the reason. So I try not to, if I see stuff on Facebook, I try to just kind of look at it, don't comment and, and kind of think to myself, you know, maybe what happened there or, or get the facts before I would ever say anything, you know? There's a, uh, a phrase that I'll steal from a individual in the pro wrestling business, Eric Bischoff, which is context is king. Yep. It, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. A lot of rigging is risk assessment. And I'll typically bring up the using monofilament for rigging. Well, I can use it again for the balloon arch because what's the risk assessment? Well, if the monofilament fails, the balloons go up to the ceiling and you got to get the BB gun and shoot them down versus if I'm hanging something heavy with it and it fails and it falls and it hurts somebody. Right. The context is important. So can you, okay, here's, here's a great topic. And now, now all the thoughts are coming to my head. Can I put a piece of 12 inch truss standard duty truss uh, can I put it sideways where the diagonals are on the top and the bottom and not the left and right? Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> yeah, you can, but it all is in context of what's the load and what are you using it for? Right? Exactly. And so uh, what if I was using that truss as a beam that's resisting horizontal force? Uh, you know, whatever that force might be. Right. It's context. If I just show you a picture of a truss that's on its side, and you go, oh, my God, that's wrong, because the diagonals are on the top and bottom and not the left and right. Mm -hmm. well, well, how is it being used? What is the context? So kudos to you for picking up on the, you know, <laughs> where I was trying to go with that, not just being like, no, you can't do that. Yeah, well, that's like anything. You know, if you can prove it mathematically and we can, you know, a lot of times the loads that we're dealing with are not that significant. So there are. You know, there, obviously, there's a lot of rules of thumbs and, and things that people say, well, you got to do this and you got to do that. Well, you know, to put it in the context of what you're actually doing or what the loads are or the application is kind of the critical piece of that. And if, if it works and the math works out and all that good stuff, then there's no reason you can't. But it's just people got to understand that, that a lot of the engineering answers in this world, and, and we say it all the time in the webinars or when I'm doing a class, you know, the word depends is really the key item here. You know, can I do this? Well, it depends on a number of things. And that's, that's really where we live in the engineering world. A lot of times is we'll start asking questions so that we can make sure that we've got all the answers we need so that we can give you guys, you know, the most efficient and safe structure that we can do. Right. So now that my brain is trying to work, <laughs> I can ask some of the questions I ask some of uh, most of my guests. Oh boy. What's your worst fear as an engineer? Um, screwing up so badly that somebody gets killed or hurt. That will keep you awake at night. That's, you know, we have fun this and goof around, but at the end of the day, you know, everybody, and I believe this to a man and a person in every show, everybody wants the audience and the performers and everybody to go home safe at night. I don't think anybody, I, I would, I would suspect that that's probably on 99.9% .9 of people's minds is, you know, as that's our job is to, to make people have fun and go home safely. Absolutely. So that keeps me up at night more than anything. What has been your favorite project to work on to date? 
and you can obviously if you need to leave out certain details of who it was for that i know and as other listeners are starting to learn sometimes you have clients who don't want to you to talk about anything you do with them but are there have there been any fun ones and i'll kind of roll that into another question which is has there been a particular challenge within a project that you're really proud of the solution that you guys came up with and just were like yeah we nailed it on that one. It was a creative solution and it worked really well. Well, I'll start with the fun ones. Um, the fun ones are always, you know, I could look back. We've done so many freaking projects. Um, but I did get to do a Bruno Mars show in Hawaii and I got taken there for the week with my wife. So we got to go hang out in Waikiki for the week. So it was just an outdoor roof that they put in Aloha Stadium. And, uh, I got to go and, and basically beach hop with Nevin Klieg all week. And uh, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know that it was any kind of engineering, uh, you know, monument to the gods or anything like that, but we sure did have fun. Um, I could do, do a lot of projects like that. Um, yep. And I've done a few down in Cancun, which are similar. Those are, you know, sitting on a beach doing site visits. is It's a tough deal sometimes, but somebody's got to do it. So... I would definitely, uh, I would definitely do those again. Um, but you, you know, the fun stuff, honestly, um, when we get to design like a roof system from scratch, I really enjoy that. Like we did the K system uh, with Brammer and those guys a, a long time ago. And it's just a lot of fun. Like, cause you get to get creative with what you're doing and what they want to hang and how things might work. Um, you know, and it's nothing overly complicated, but the fun part is you're collaborating with the guys that are going to be building the roof. You're, collaborating with the fabricator, fabric, the owner, you know, and sometimes the artist who they're getting some input from. So those, those are always fun because you're dealing with a whole bunch of people. And that, that's the part I like most about all this is all the folks we get to deal with. Because, uh, you know, let's face it, a lot of the rigors that I work with are half insane. So and, uh, that makes it fun, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, do you have to have a certain... Uh outlook on light life to climb to the top of a 80 to 100 foot 20 inch by 20 inch tower and uh work up there so that's pretty much everybody in the industry they're just all a little bit off off kilter and i'd, I'd include myself in that so yep you know for dealing for dealing with us yeah exactly um but challenging projects um you know we did izu a number of years ago, like 2015, and it was just a very stressful build. Uh, for no reason in particular, there was just a lot going on. It was hot. It, it was, I'll just say that one tested my limits for the week. You know, by the time I got home, you know, I'd probably lost 10 pounds because we were worried the whole week just because nothing seemed to be going right. And, you know, people, everybody was at each other's throat. And it was just, uh, it was a rough week. But uh, we got through it, and everything was safe and so forth. So that's really what, what mattered. But it was, uh, I'll just say that was a good challenge for me. <laughs> what area of rigging do you think needs the most improvement? Oh, boy. That is a good question. Um, hmm. You know, most of the rig plots we get are pretty decent, I think. Um, 
I'm just, I don't know that I have a good answer on that one. I got to sit and think about that. Can, can I pass and come back to that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I, it, it, I think if I were to reframe the question, which is, would be, if I was to reframe the question, I would do so by saying, what do you, what do you wish rigors would do more of when working with you as the engineer on a project? Oh, well, I honestly, I don't mind them calling at all. Um, and sometimes we don't always know if there's automation or things like that. Um, so for us, you know, the biggest thing is getting information and getting it timely and getting it correctly. So I think if there's any changes, it's, it's important that they communicate them with us. Sometimes I know things get moving a little quick and guys don't have time and they make, make an audible. Um, but I think the one thing I want to make sure, and I, I think most of them do reach out, but you know, as a, as a whole, our company's pretty approachable. Uh, most guys have my cell phone. I get, I'll take calls at midnight. I don't really care. Um, so I think just making sure that they know the line of communication is always open. I think that's probably a key thing, you know, cause they can send the rig plots and as long as those are accurate, then we can, we can work with those. But, um, but making sure that they've got, you know, kind of their ducks in a row and they've got us on board with the same stuff. That to me is the key part of it. Yeah. I, uh, I'll tell a story of a project that you and I worked on together a few years ago when I was working for the lighting company. Uh, we had a project in a section of downtown Boston that was particularly windy um, because of the tall buildings. And we had been contracted to supply the lighting for a outdoor flash mob event. So it was a large dance event. And the original plan was to build scaffold towers to put the lighting on. Uh, the cost of the scaffold became an issue so I came up with the idea of using some of the components from our self-climbing. We wouldn't say roof system because we didn't own a skin for it, but it was a self-climber four-poster. So I had bases, roller sleeves, the hoist, obviously. And so came up again with the conceptual idea of doing a giant lighting tree that could go up and down. So as the weather permitted, we could go to the height of roughly 35 feet, 33 feet. Mm -hmm. and uh, you and I worked on the design of coming up with a giant, what we call a base detail, which is how much weight can we get at the base of this so that we can make it stable. And we had some short scaffold that some audio was on. We had some water ballast. We had gone back and forth. We figured this out. Great. It installed really well. We had a situation where the end user the client or the producer had decided that they wanted to take advantage of this scaffold and to hide it because it was fairly fugly. They put uh, marketing banners around it. And that was not part of our original design. And we ended up having a situation where in a heavy wind situation, one of the towers shifted and we got lucky. It didn't fall. As the structure shifted, some of it rested against the other structure, and it stopped at about 30 degrees, which mm -hmm. is still nerve-wracking. Yeah. So I get on site. I take photos. We secure it. I actually used my 
Ford Explorer as a ballast and we took some guy wires that we had and attached it to the trailer hitch of the Explorer just to make sure it couldn't continue to move. And at this point, the building inspector showed up and he had just come off of a crane collapse with a fatality. So he was in a really good mood. And it, that was maybe 20 minutes, half an hour after I arrived on site. And we couldn't do anything until we got there. But I had looked at it. I had sent some photos to you real quickly. We had uh -huh. talked about some different things. And basically what we discovered was that we had created a pivot point with how we attached the scaffold to the truss tower. And we said, oh, how did we miss that? But we did. And here's the solution. We're going to eliminate that pivot point by doing this. However, I couldn't make that change. And when the building inspector showed up, he also agreed that that's what happened. But we couldn't change the design because what he had in his folder was the stamped drawings for the original design. Yep. And I could not deviate from that engineered design. So this comes into what you had been just saying, which was, it's like a five o'clock on a Thursday or Friday. And I called you and I said, hey, what are you doing? And you said, I am about to drink a beer. And I said, yeah, put that down. <laughs> and we we addressed it. We solved it within an hour and a half. We had fixed the problem on all four towers and, and no issues uh, going forward from that. But that story I tell a lot when I'm doing trainings, talking about the relationship that you have with your engineer of, hey, as we're putting this together physically, there's a change. And you can't just say, ah, if I move this over six inches, we'll be fine. Because you don't know if that six inches right. is just the first part of that failure chain. And it's a daisy chain of other events. Right. So having that relationship, whoever your engineer is, there are a lot of very good engineering companies out there that do entertainment engineering, yep. but build that relationship with them where you can call them and say, Hey, I got on site and the original drawing didn't have this sprinkler pipe. So now I got to modify it to do this. Can we, what do we have to do and involve them in that process of creating solutions? Even times I'll get a call from somebody and they'll start building something and say, you know, I just really don't feel comfortable with this. Can we, can we change this, that, and the other, you know, and it might be that they drew it and sent it to us and said, this is what we want to do. We run the numbers like, yeah, that works. Or, or we might design it and they might say, you know, I just, I just don't want to do that. And, and you know, again, I don't take offense as long as we can make it work and it's going to be safe. And that's, you know, kind of the key to the whole, the whole deal. And, uh, that's why it, it's good that, like you said, if there's a relationship between the parties and it's really nice because you don't feel bad about calling them. I, I love when I get to meet guys that I've only talked to on the phone, you get, you get to have a beer with them or something, and then you can really talk shop and you really find out what they're into. And it, it makes it a lot more fun when you're working with them too, you know, it, it just makes it easier as well. Absolutely. What has been one of the worst rigging environments you've been in? Uh, you've in your trainings, you've talked about some projects where you were called in to do an inspection or a second opinion about of things. What do you think was has been the most egregious? Uh, uh, had, and there's been some times and we've been I've been down in the Dominican before to look at a uh, an outdoor roof setup that was, it was pretty ugly. Um, you know, and I, I think it was 
you know, in large part because the equipment that they got was just in such disrepair when we got there. Um, just, you know, in the U.S., if you would have tried to build that, somebody would have called you out right away. You know, if you took that into New York and and you said, hey, we're going to have Local One help build this, they would they would just throw that thing away. They'd say there's not a chance we're building that, you know. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've definitely seen some things down outside the U.S. that have been a, a definitely a little sketchier, I would say. I get calls sometimes from, you know, ESPN when they're doing stuff um, down in South America, and they'll say this is what they built. And you kind of look at it and like, man, that's, you know, here in the States, that would not be acceptable. And we've been, you know, you were talking, uh, Jerry Ritter, I've been on the phone with him when he's been down trying to rig in South America. And, you know, they've done some roofs that are a little different than up here. And he'll call and he's, he was telling us they had something sagging six inches before they even loaded it. And he said they got about a third of the, the load on and he just, he just stopped everything until they could figure it out. And I'll tell you what, it was tough to piece it back together while they're on site. You know, you got 24 hours to figure out if they can do this show or not. Right. Uh, I remember we, you know, we were on the phone with Jerry and some of the other guys and we finally determined that they could hang one lighting truss for the show based on what we had and the information and, you know, how much deflection he was seeing. So a big time performer played with like two torms and one lighting truss. That was it, you know, of a rig of, you know, he was probably playing with maybe a fifth of his rig or something like that. So, um, but it's stuff like that, you know, I was glad they called. It was, you know, glad we have those relationships that those guys, you know, feel that they can call us and we'll, we'll be responsive because the end of the day, if, if something bad happens, it affects every single one of us, not just the parties involved, you know, saying that happened with Indiana, it, it affected everyone, not just, you know, all the groups that were involved in that. No, absolutely. And that's, that's the topic that, um, I think at some point I might do an episode with a couple of guests about the Indiana state fair roof system collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, a, you know, we've talked about how that is the origin story for the Event Safety Alliance, that that was the incident that uh, motivated individuals to say, you know what, this this is enough. We need to figure out how to improve safety within our industry and to make sure that everyone, audience and workers alike get to go home. But it is also a very interesting engineering Mm -hmm. situation. There's a uh, episode of a TV show, which I can't recall, but I will put it in the show notes uh, that talks about the the collapse. Um, If, you know, I'm again, we all know this. I'm one of those dorks where I've actually read the 1500 pound, a 1500 page uh, report that was done about what caused the failure, both in a uh, engineering sense and a personnel sense. Uh And one of the things that when we talk about that event is that there were people who made poor decisions about what to do given the circumstances, as well as failure for not following the design Mm -hmm. Um, and that had 
certain decisions been made, we probably still would have had a collapse, but maybe there would have not been people around the structure. So we'd be talking about why did it fall and no one got hurt versus why did it fall and people were killed. Right. So there is a certain aspect of that. One of the questions that popped into my head, and we've talked about this when we've done presentations before, is there is a perception by a lot of people in the industry, and I will I'll say it this way. We have all worked for events where budget was a limiting factor. Right. We, we know the industry we work in. Not every single show is going to be Bruno Mars with a huge budget. Sometimes it's very small. And there is this misnomer that hiring an engineer can be is expensive that you know my ten thousand dollar lighting budget is going to be twenty thousand dollars once we involve an engineer is that true Only is engineering want... expensive <laughs> no a lot of it's not it depends on the event but you know i'd like to think that we're fairly reasonable um you know a lot of times we have and I'm sure some of the other engineering firms too, when you work for certain companies for a while, you start building a library of their equipment and their materials. And, and it's much quicker and easier to just say, Hey, let's run this rig plot and we can do it, you know, fairly efficiently for them. Um, the costs come in when we start doing big shows and it's very custom and things like that, which, which you would expect it to be because everything else is going to be the same way. So I, I think what we do is in line with, you know, the basic services that everybody else is kind of supplying on that show as well. So, and if it wasn't, we probably wouldn't be in business, I guess. Yeah. I, I, without, and I'll, I'll speak freely to people. I don't think I've ever done a project with Clark reader engineering and paid more than $2,000 on any of the, the services. Now, a lot of times, and again, it goes back to the relationship. We have a venue in Boston where you need a stamped engineer drawing before you can do a show there. So I would do load calculations. You know, the lighting designer would say, here's what I want to do. We'd come up the rig. I would do load calculations. I would do them by hand. I would verify those. And then I would send them to Clark Reader. And you guys would, again, like you said, take the information I gave, assuming it's true. And then you would verify that. So... One of the advantages was I had done a lot of the legwork in terms of what's how far from the end of the truss is this light. And what we did is, is through our relationship, I learned how to package the information to make it efficient for you. Because right. what right. people, I think, perceive as the cost is, oh, it's going to take them hours and hours to do something. Well, like many of us, we're, you guys bill usually by the hour or you use an hourly rate to estimate what you think it will take to do a project. Mm -hmm. So if there are things that I can do drafting that you guys don't have to do, that helps reduce the cost. So again, it goes back to that former relationship and don't be afraid to ask questions. Say, Hey, you know, here's what I have. Here's what my budget is. I need to get this stamped. How can we do this? Right. Yeah. Yeah, Friendly guys for the most part. I, and I think if people have asked, I'm sure there have been times you've been paid in beer. So that has happened. That has happened. It may have been a 275 gallon ballast of beer, but hey, it's beer. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Do you uh, you have any 
new tools or widgets or are there any products in the entertainment rigging world that uh, have caught your eye recently? Uh, not really. I think the last three months we've just been trying to figure out what the heck's going on and keep moving, you know, kind of in survival mode. Um, nothing jumping out in my head. Uh, there probably should be, but I can't think of them right now. Now that you put me on the spot. Oh, that's what I do well. <laughs> Have there been any people within the entertainment industry that you would consider mentors? Well, you know, the guy that got me into this was Sean Nolan. Um, I didn't know anything about this industry. And he gave me my very first job in this world. So when he had, he had started the entertainment structures group there, one of the first things I did was for him, and it was a scaff tower. And I was thinking they're going to put people on scaffold and make a VIP out of it. And I was like, this is criminally insane, you know. Um, but Sean was kind of the guy that, that kind of got me into it. And for the first four or five years, you know, he was my, my go-to question answer guy. I'd be, I didn't know what a shackle was. I didn't know, you know, what bridles were, you know, none of that stuff. So I would go to him, like, explain this to me. Like, what is this thing? You know, what's a screw jack? I don't understand this. So, you know, he had, obviously he's the guy that got me into this. So I, I used to bug him relentlessly on stuff and he was fun. You know, Sean, Sean is, uh, is one of those guys and he has been a mentor to me who he got into engineering he got his degree and his license later in life he yeah. went back to school and i started working with sean on the ANSI e 1.39 standard for fall arrest um that's how i met him back in 2009 and i a lot of conversations over drinks about the amount of work it would take if I wanted to go back to school and, and, but he had done it. It right. took him, I think eight years to get his degree. And he did it with the sole purpose of, of doing that for the entertainment industry. So he was one of the few guys that I've, you know, talked to that specifically went and said, I'm going to go get my degree so I can, can do this in the entertainment world. Um, yep. And the other one that I know works with us now, Alan Winsler, he, he was a rigger and he decided, you know, at some point I don't want to be climbing. And he said, but I really love the work. So he went back to school and he called us after he got his degree and said, I want a job. And we didn't know him from boo, but it was really nice hiring a guy that had rigging experience that was doing engineering. Yeah. And part of that is speaking the language, yeah. being understand. I think that's a lot of what the relationship that you form with with any other person, whether it's an engineer or designer, is learning to speak a so, language that yeah. is clear and, and precise. Um, I'll, I'll mention the YouTube video that I created a few weeks ago that was off of one of the webinars talking about shock loads versus dynamic loads. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I will get very particular about terminology because it it matters, especially when we're talking about load calculations. Um, it's important to be as precise as possible. So the video basically goes into the that shock loads are a type of dynamic load, but they are a specific type, and that has to deal with the force of gravity. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it's totally nerdy, weedy, 
physics <laughs> stuff that you get into, but I think that's fairly important. And you, and when you learn to use those terms properly, and I freely admit I misspeak sometimes, I screw it up, and thankfully we go back and we say, "Did you mean this?" Yes, I, that's what I meant. Yep. But being able to articulate that stuff efficiently, efficiently is what helps build that relationship, so that the engineer can do what you need them to do. Yeah. So well, you think of when you said, "What do you wish people would do more of?" You know, for us. A drawing, you know, a picture speaks a thousand words, right? So yep. we'll get a lot of times where people will send us a picture or they'll send us a verbal description of something. But if we can actually see a detail and a drawing of something with dimensions and material sizes, that is like, you know, the greatest thing for an engineer. So if there's yeah. one thing I could say is that if you send us stuff to an engineer, any engineer, they're going to want to know all these questions of material dimensions. So just sending a picture and saying, what do you think? You know, that doesn't give us much context, you know, sending us a full description, you know, so, and that comes in part with what you were just talking about with the communication, understanding the language. But, but that did just strike a chord with me. Like, oh yeah, if, if we ever need anything, when I ask for info, man, it is really nice to get a nice sketch and a drawing and stuff like that. Cause that tells us a whole bunch of stuff. Absolutely. It, that just made me think of another uh, situation that um, you and I in Elmer dealt with two or three years ago, which was I was doing an inspection at a local uh, music venue in Boston, and they have a, I believe, 36 by 40 truss that they is over their apron. And it is it's a mother grid. It's a single stick, 50 feet long mother grid. And while I'm doing the inspection, I inspect the hoist. I do the rest of the space. I'm like, oh, I should look at the truss. It's 50 feet. And I just happened to look down the, the line of the truss and notice that one of the diagonals on the upstage side is severely bent. So I look at it, and the welds at the top and bottom are cracked. It's clearly damaged. We don't know how. And they have one more event before they're dark for a month. Now, thankfully, that last event was a graduation for a local school. Or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they were going to hang 12 lights, 12 park hands on this. But that relationship came into play. I called the manufacturer and I said, hey, so this is what they're dealing with. And I happen to know that that manufacturer used you and Clark Reader as their engineer on the product. So the first thing I did is I called the, the manufacturer said, hey, do you mind if I talk with the engineer just so we can get a, a quick answer? Absolutely not. Go for it. I then call you and I say, hey, so here's the challenge. And very easily, and I sent the photos to Eric, so maybe you guys will show these in a, a future webinar. We took a piece of Schedule 40 pipe and a pair of cheese bros, and we married it right next to the diagonal and said, not that we're worried about it, but the, it was the middle of the 50 feet. And we know they're only going to hang 12 lights, but let's do this just to be sure. And it was, I still have it. I'll, I'll maybe I'll post a photo of it on, on Facebook. I have the iPad chicken scratch drawing that I sent to you <laughs> initially to be like, here's yeah. what happened. Here's where the diagonal is. Here's where it is in the span of this truss. Chicken scratch, you know, napkin CAD digital version sent it off and very quickly within 15 20 minutes we said yep we're comfortable with this plan 
you know, knowing what the 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 assumed loads are going to be, and it worked out well. And then they were able to buy a new piece of truss and, and swap it out. Yeah. So that drawings are important. Absolutely. Very much so. Is there anything on your entertainment engineering bucket list that you'd love to do? Oh boy. Uh, you know, I have no idea. I'm pretty boring, I guess. Um, nothing jumping out at me right now. I like, you know, I do like the traveling we get to do from time to time to some cool places. Um, so maybe going to Australia and doing a gig out there or something would be kind of fun. But no, nothing, nothing that jumps out like, oh, I got to do this or that. Um, you know, I'm just trying to enjoy the ride, I guess. That's uh, certainly something to have fun with is just enjoying what every day brings you. Yep. I think one of the things that you are well known for is education. You've done a lot of classes, whether it's been Total Roof School or uh, the webinars with EPS, some a bunch of different things. What do you enjoy about the teaching? Uh, I think it's the interaction. I really like like I like being in the classes with the people because you kind of get a feel for who's there and what they do. You know what I mean? And I think. You know, one of the good things is most of the engineers that are in this industry that we're in are a little different than the engineers that you find in the building world, um, because we do have to kind of do some quick thinking, um, talk on our feet a lot more. Uh, so I, I like kind of dispelling the, the myth that, you know, I mean, yeah, we're geeks, we're, we're nerds, we're engineers, but, you know, that we can sit and have conversations with people and have a little fun. Um but that's the part I like. The, the tough part with the webinars is you don't get that same feel for the class and the interaction, you know? Right. I mean, it, it's fun in the classes when you get the whiteboard going and people are firing questions and, well, what about this? And this is how we do it. What do you think about that? And, and um, just the banter of, of doing it for a couple, two, three days with some folks. And it, it, you know, it ends up being a lot of fun in my opinion. That, that just reminded me of a, a good conversation that you had with some students of a, a roof school that we were taking a break, whether it was lunch or just a break. And one of them came up to you and asked the question of on a plated truss, and by plated, I mean a truss that gets bolted together. Mm-hmm. How important is it to line up the diagonals? So when you take a class, a truss, whether it's inspection or a use class, usually the topic will come up about matching the diagonals through the sections of truss. Mm -hmm. So you might hear the term A versus V, and there's, you know, again, the clarity issue is, are you talking about the, the first pair of diagonals on either side of the joint or what they form with the joint in the middle? Pick your poison, however you want to describe it. But the question was, hey, if I hang 40 feet of 12-inch general purpose truss and we hang our lights and we take it up to trim and we notice that one of those four sections is upside down from the others, do we have to take the truss down and reassemble (laughs) it? And it was interesting for me. uh, I was just watching this question being asked. But it, it goes to what you were saying, which is they came up with this question. And you and I had taught for three years together at that point. And the question had never come up. And it wasn't in our general curriculum. 
but it was kind of that impetus of now we talk about it a lot more which was well actually on a gp truss on a plated truss that end plate is transferring the load to the bolts so it actually doesn't matter and yeah as long as you've got the end ring in there and you can get the shear through the verticals and and stuff and you know it really doesn't affect the capacity per right. se but then again context is king where we said but the reason we typically don't talk about that is because we're looking for a a common ring principle which is you always want to match up your diagonals because if you're doing that with a conically connected truss that doesn't have an end plate or maybe the end plate is uh other tubes that are a few inches back from the connection mm -hmm. that's different that right. load transfer is more important or more reliant on the diagonals than it is the end plate so we typically go with the lowest common denominator, which is make sure your diagonals match. Now, there's certainly an aesthetics part of this, which is, you know, sure. someone will post a picture of it on Facebook and go, oh, my, look at what they did wrong. Yeah. But it is that interaction of being a, allowing people to ask questions and to have that dialogue into to figure things out, because people have some very strange experiences and and different projects they've worked on where they're like hey this is this was the problem we had and this is what we thought we would come up with it's also really fun to hear people pose questions of this was the problem here's how i fixed it what do you think and you'd be like yeah maybe you got lucky on that one yeah or something new from that going oh, i never thought to do that that's a good idea you know it's yeah. just and that that's the part that's fun because you can you can learn a lot more you know, because everybody in, in, the, in the world does things a little different. You know, there's 10 different ways to skin the cat, right? So um, when we get different things from different folks, it's nice to hear. When there's other engineers in the class, it's always nice, too, because then I can see, you know, when we did Tomcat U, I, Norbert was there from Area 4 and uh, never met him. And to hear that the, he's, you know, doing the same things we're doing and, and teaching guys in his company the same things we're saying and like, yeah, that's kind of nice, you know, from across the pond that they're doing something almost identical to us. And so maybe maybe all of us are starting to figure it out a little bit. I think that's an important topic or subject that people should recognize is peer review is not a bad thing. Nope. That learning to put your ego aside and to get other constructive criticism about a solution is not necessarily a bad thing mm -mm. at a minimum it is going to allow you to articulate your thought process on why you made certain choices right. and you may prove out your theory or someone may say hey you missed this one little nugget we missed that pivot point on that previous design and that you find that solution, which gets to what we've always talked about, which is everyone gets to go home and, and no injuries or exactly situations. So it is kind of interesting. I mean, I know I'm this hybrid type position where I can hang out with the engineers and I can talk with them and really enjoy that part of it. And it is fun to see a group of engineers get together and, and talk. <laughs> but also hang out with the root the the circus riggers and have fun with that family as well yep for sure for sure now i'm trying to think of new and creative questions that i've never asked before 
Oh boy. You gonna make me the guinea pig for that? Why not? <laughs> okay. What is the thing that riggers do with truss that drives you as an engineer absolutely crazy? They don't rig at a panel point. I see that a lot still. They'll just, you know, well, that's where the point needs to be. And, uh, you know, and even if the truss is rated for it, they don't realize that if you don't go to the panel point, you know, you're, you're derating it because you're now trying to bend that cord. So that, that's probably my biggest one. Cause every now and again, I'll get out on the site and I'll look up and the video walls, you know, wrap on a spot where there's absolutely no panel point. It's like, come on, like that gets drilled into everybody's head all the time. And, uh, you know, that drives me bananas. With the video wall industry, I mean, everyone's hanging video walls. Mm-hmm. I would assume you're not a big fan of of the span set up and around the truss and back down to a shackle to the wall that the variation in span sets and the fact that often they're not at panel points um, is the you know worst case scenario from an engineering standpoint of loading a truss. Like trying to twist it, you mean? Twist it. It, the the no no span set is the same length as any other span set. They right. all deviate a little. Um, okay, here we go. Get your waders on. Here come the weeds. <laughs> when we talk about rigging math, typically there is a term that we use for very complicated structures, which are known as indeterminate structures. Yep. And what we mean by that is that if all of our data given to us is exactly correct and it's perfect, so as we calculate it and how it's installed is exactly the same, then yes, we can calculate the loads. But the problem is in the real world, it is not going to be that way. And I did a presentation before where I had the uh, slide that said all rigging math is theory. And that got some interesting reactions, but that's what I wanted to do. The point was mm -hmm. that it's all about the data. And when you take an LED wall, it's a perfect example about an indeterminate structure. Yep. The LED wall manufacturer will say, you need to hang this on our header bars and every half meter, 500 millimeters, there is a eye bolt and a loop, a shackle, whatever it is, a ring. And that in order to properly support the LED wall to keep it from falling apart on itself, you have to support these header bars at all those points. And so we do that onto a piece of truss. Well, we have the truss design is not perfectly matched to those header bars. So where those span sets end up may not be at a panel point, as right. well as the fact that those span sets are not all manufactured exactly the same. And so it may be an eighth of an inch difference in length. And when you wrap that over the truss, you would never, you, you almost can't measure that. But the forces know it. That force of one span set to the next to the next is going to be different. That will not match what we calculated. Plus with the truss deflection versus the deflection of the video wall, you've got other issues going on up there because if the truss deflects in the middle, now it's going to redistribute load differently as well. So Correct. And, and we talked about that with Jerry a little bit in, in last episode about how when you load a building structure, it moves. Mm -hmm. So it's not as calculated. They're, 
the, the, Jeff alluded to it earlier, statics. Nothing is static in this world. The question is whether or not you can see it. Can you measure it? Do you know it's there? And how do you respond to it? So, yeah, the, the nice thing about LED walls, and again, I learned this from Sean Nolan, has been when you build bigger LED walls, they tend to be really rigid. Mm -hmm. We talk about load distribution on a beam and how if I have a, a beam that's 40 feet long and I hang it with two points at the end, we know that half of the load, assuming it's uniform across the whole thing. So let's just talk about self-weight or 500 pounds hung exactly in the middle. We know half of the weight's going to each one of those beams. Right. If we, if we add a point in the middle, logic, the initial response that people have is oh well it's three so i take that load and divide it by three but it actually doesn't work that way if you think about it as two spans now one hoist on the end takes half of one span the other hoist at the other end takes half of one span but that motor in the middle is taking half of each span or one span and that's the intuitive method so that motor is taking more load well as you add more points you start gaining capacity, they start sharing load, and uh -huh. that's the exact same thing on the top of the LED wall. However, what Sean was referring to was because the wall is so stiff, it doesn't deflect like the beam does. It right. doesn't, and I, it's not a sine wave, but it's a good uh, visual. The beam's actually like a sine wave. Every point that you're hanging a load in is bending down, and out of reaction, the rest of the beam is bending up in certain places, and so it forms the sine wave, let's say. Well, the LED wall, because it's so tall and so rigid, tends not to deflect that way. So it makes life a little easier right. in one regard, but then it also complicates things because they're so heavy and fragile. They tend to not be very robust in terms of their internal structure. So that's why you have to hang every 500 millimeters or whatever distance on the header bar. Wow, is everyone soaking wet from the weeds there? We got deep. <laughs> Which is totally, totally fine. But, all right. I don't know if I have any other good questions. Awesome. Just, I, I'm sucking today. I, I can hit you with the, the, the hardest one that I ask everybody. It tortures people. Do you have any good or bad rigging jokes? Hmm. No. Well, I guess one thing they say about, Daniel says it all the time, you know, the, the stuff we do for engineering is fiction to three decimal points. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I mean, I got nothing, man. I got nothing. You get an engineer, you're not going to get jokes. All right. We, well, I had. You should do I, one of those over a, a, at a bar with some beer and then it'll get real exciting. I, uh, I have one prepared. I, I was prepared just in case that is related to a lot of the work that you do with aluminum structures and uh, particularly with truss manufacturers, which is why is the lighting truss made out of aluminum? I have no idea. So it doesn't rust while everyone's waiting for the riggers to get it flown. <laughs> See, I would think they'd be like, because they're waiting on the engineering to get finished or something. Uh, but I like it better. Yeah, well, you know, some of these are, are jokes that I've kind of shifted a little to apply to rigging. But, um, you know, it's all in good humor. All right. Well, any uh, any closing words, any thoughts, any uh, words of wisdom you want to share with all six listeners? 
Nah, not really. You know, I guess drink your Ovaltine. Does that yeah. work? Drink your Ovaltine, <laughs> pull your points. <laughs> I've got nothing. Uh, I appreciate you having me on, though, man. It's been fun. I appreciate you doing this. And as I've mentioned to a lot of people, we'll, uh, we'll certainly have some guests back. We'll do some group conversations about different topics. But uh, I appreciate you spending some time talking with me and uh, giving people information about engineers and how awesome they are and how they help out in so many applications and <laughs> keep stuff from falling down, which is the goal. Right on. Right on. Awesome. Well, cool. thanks everyone for listening. I, uh, as always, appreciate your feedback and comments and questions. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.